Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. EPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome. That was some Rainbow Connection introduction. And I hear Byron, I hear Leah, I think there's a Gabriel, and I definitely heard Cheryl. Welcome uh, we to Pride heard Connection. Cheryl. Hello, hello, I'm here. Hey, so why don't we let Gabriel do his little president's message, and then we will talk about the interview we're about to hear, Miss Cheryl Cummings, who brought us some great interview, a, a great interview with some great information. Gabe, take it away. Thanks. Yeah, without further ado, because we want to give time um, for Cheryl's interview. Thank you so, so much, Cheryl. Um, We've opened up Pride Connection, and we definitely encourage participation. Like we always say, Pride Connection belongs to BPI and its membership. And uh, Cheryl and Tim are some awesome ally members of BPI. And uh, Cheryl has brought us uh, an amazing recording with uh, good, good, good information, very relevant right now uh, that affects all of us and something that we need to talk about. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to allow for Anthony and uh, Leah. Byron, thank you so much for being our official streamer. That was an amazing (laughs) Rainbow Connection um and yeah um if um cheryl uh, i don't know so tell us a little bit about brandy and how this interview came about before we run it oh um so it actually came out of this uh, the mcac summer presentation where uh we talked about um access to health was one of our issues and we were talking about um, Michael, and I can't remember his last name, but the young man who um, had a traumatic brain injury and uh, was a paraplegic and uh, went to the hospital with COVID in Texas. And mm-hmm. there was a huge dispute, um, like who, who had like ultimate guard, guardianship for him because the doctors had um, mentioned to his wife that they were discontinuing care for him because they didn't think he had that great a quality of life. Um, And so they stopped his care and he died. Um, Mm. And his family, his wife is now suing the hospital. Um, And, that just like 
I don't know about you, but it terrified me <laughs> because as a person with yeah. a disability, I'm like, oh, what are they saying? How do they know how what his quality of life is like? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I started hearing about um, states and their crisis care standards for, for COVID. Um, I know here in Massachusetts, they brought something out in April. Um, and um, just again, disability groups and, you know, age advocates looked at it and said, this is not acceptable. You've got to, you know, go and think about it again. Uh, and thankfully, there was some sufficient of an uproar and also that the state figured out how to expand services so they never had to implement these standards because, again, the standards would have resulted in older people and people with disabilities being put to the back of the line. Um, And so we talked about that and Linda Perel from Women's Concern, who is a member of the Independent Resource Center in San Francisco, heard the discussion and said, hey, we just came up with some standard of care um, policies in California. Do you want to see it? Um, and so she sent it to me and I looked at it and I said, oh my gosh, I want to not, I, I want to talk to somebody who can tell me more about this. Mm-hmm. And voila, Brandy <laughs> was the person she introduced me to. And Brandy, as she'll t- you'll hear on the interview, she is a attorney that works for this um, center. And um, she was part of a coalition in California of different advocacy organizations and their Department of Public Health that worked on creating standards that really paid attention to uh, like a variety of identities and worked really hard to make sure that disability, age, weight, uh, I mean, lots of criteria that none of those were or could have could could be used to diminish um, care or right, deny care or to take yeah. away care. So, yeah. so, um, and in case, know. in case anyone out there is listening and saying, well, you know, this would never be implemented in practice. Let us, let us think about this for a moment. Just this weekend, a number 80,000. That's right. 80,000 new cases of the COVID-19 virus across the country. So it is a very, very real possibility that the laws, the standards of care, I shouldn't say laws, that the standards of care in an emergency situation that have been drafted can go into effect because we're not going to see that tomorrow. We're not going to see that on election day. We're not even going to see it a week after election day. But if it's 80,000 this weekend, next month, a quarter of those will be still be sick. An eighth of those will have been or will still be hospitalized. And a 24th of those will be dying. Those are the real numbers. A 24th of those 80,000 people will be dying. So Byron, please run this interview and then we'll be back to discuss this. 
after this brilliant interview with Cheryl and Brandy. Welcome. This is Cheryl Cummings. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to talk with Brandy Senziak. She is the uh, supervising attorney at the Independent Living Resource Center in San Francisco. And Brandy has agreed to come to speak with me today about the standard of care guidelines. We'll talk a little bit about why we think it's important for folks with disabilities and certainly people who are blind and low vision to care about this. But before we go any further, well, welcome, welcome first. And Thank would you. you take a few minutes and just sort of introduce yourself, tell us a little about you and the work you do at the um, the Resource Center? Absolutely. So as you said, I'm an attorney and I've been at Independent Living Resource Center San Francisco for about two and a half years now. And there I practice disability law. Um, sort of what that includes is uh, reasonable accommodations. Uh, social, uh, we assist people in applying or appealing social security decisions um, based on disabilities, as well as some pre-eviction cases. Um, so, you know, if people are having issues with the landlord before a landlord serves an eviction, we try to negotiate with the landlord or if folks need some sort of accommodation in their housing or their workplace, uh, we also do that type of work. And then now during COVID, um, we've been doing some more sort of medical advocacy and a little bit of policy work around, not necessarily like policy, but around like making sure that disabled people aren't being discriminated against for purposes of getting medical treatment during COVID. And so I do that. And then my background is actually in uh, immigration and criminal defense. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad you're here because I have a few questions. <laughs> about, sure. Uh, this whole sort of inquiry grew out of a discussion we were actually having during summer where we were talking about a case in Texas, about a, a man um, who was disabled, who went to the hospital, um, diagnosed with COVID, and his family said he was, you know, recovering, and they anticipated that he would recover. And the doctors supposedly, allegedly, said that as a result of his, like, quality of life expectations, that they decided to discontinue care for him. And so that got us thinking, like, how could they do that? And what exists that might help them to make those types of decisions? And then um, somebody talked about the standard of care. And before we go any further, can you tell us a little bit about, I don't know, am I using the right term? Because I see standard of care, I see crisis standard of care. What is it? So as far as the, you know, standard of care, I think that that's probably determined by the, you know, medical industry themselves um, and the medical boards and things. Basically, the guidelines or the care during, basically like, Care during crises and um, triage care um, when there's shortages of things are right. sort of governed differently. So, for instance, you can basically put 
qualifiers on like who's going to get care first. You know, we started seeing in other countries and other states, basically guidelines coming out from other states or even um, hospitals that said things like during COVID, if there's a shortage in ventilators, here's how we decide who's going to get the ventilator or the life-saving treatment. And on many of those lists, if people had pre-existing conditions or disabled people or fat people, basically they would be, (laughs) they were lower on the list of who was going to get treatment. And this is really problematic for a lot of reasons. One, and, and in addition to that, a, a big reason that is problematic is because it's sort of like a loophole for racial discrimination too. So basically making decisions based on if someone has pre-existing conditions or disability has a disproportionate impact on communities of color and black and brown folks. So it's also a loophole for racial discrimination. You know, we saw this happening, um, myself and um, a lot of other lawyer groups like Justice and Aging and Disability Rights California and DREDF. And we got worried. (laughs) And so we um, basically, once the California guidelines came out, we read through them and realized that there were a lot of problems with the California crisis care guidelines. And one of which was that it just, well, basically it was going to make healthcare decisions for folks mm-hmm. based on, yeah, comorbidities, preexisting conditions, age, uh, weight, size, perceived quality of life. And, you know, how long they thought someone was going to live. So not just even how long, but also if they thought that you were going to live, if they thought you had a good quality of life. It wasn't going to be in like everyday health care or those decisions weren't being like if there wasn't a shortage, mm-hmm. then those things weren't being taken into account. But this would be like if there was a shortage or even possibly an anticipation of a shortage. So, you know, if they thought, well, you know, we have enough machines now, but we might not have enough machines tomorrow, they could deny treatment or, you know, remove people from we were worried that they would remove people from ventilators. Um, If someone younger, healthier, thinner, less disabled came in um, and needed treatment. I mean, that that just sort of blows my mind, because as you think about accessing health care, there's often so much discussion around just the ability to get into the door and yeah. then the ability to pay that you don't necessarily think about these other sort of criteria. But as you said, Absolutely. They, these tend to operate generally in a, in a, a shortage. So like, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, we're aware of it now because of the pandemic, but am I thinking? Well, these guidelines it... weren't released before. So yes, it's, it's in cases of shortages. Right. You know, I don't know why. I mean, we've obviously had other health emergencies in the past, um, right. but basically this was California's attempt at making, at creating guidelines that they didn't have in place before. You know, I can't speak for all other states, but I can, 
you know, speak for California and Mm -hmm. they released basically these guidelines. We read through them and realized how problematic they were. And so we basically worked with California Department of Public Health in revising the guidelines and hopefully making them, I mean, I wouldn't call them perfect, but they're much, much better. And so, I mean, even in the document itself, under the key points about crisis care, it literally, it states uh, healthcare decisions, including allocation of scarce resources, cannot be based on age, race, disability, including weight-related disabilities and chronic medical conditions, gender, sexual, sexual orientation, gender identity, ethnicity, including national origin or language spoken, ability to pay, weight, size, social economic status, insurance status, perceived self-worth, perceived quality of life, immigration status, incarceration status, homelessness, or past or future use of resources. So we were able to work with them so that they include all those things mm-hmm. basically they cannot make healthcare decisions or decisions based on any of that list of things so help me understand so you've been using the word guidelines so what is the sort of strength of the guidelines and i think i think you said it came from the California Department of Public Health so yes. sort of what's the structure? So the, the... Yeah, so a lot of states, mm-hmm. um, Department of Health have their own, they issue guidelines, mm-hmm. um, as well as hospitals, individual hospitals can also have their own guidelines. So Cal, this is California's guidelines saying, you know, we're of course going to try to avoid a crisis and right. uh, the guidelines for state for hospitals to try to not be in a crisis situation. <laughs> But if they get themselves in a crisis situation, then this is, you know, how California suggests they should proceed. However, it's not it's not law. It's a guidance. It's a suggestion. And so it's really important one kind of advocacy work that ILRC has been doing along with these the other organizations I mentioned earlier. And um, some coalitions have been doing is coming together and trying to get hospitals to agree to at least follow the California guidelines. And maybe they have their own guidelines that are even better, but Mm -hmm. we would like them to at least agree to follow the California guidelines at the minimum. And, you know, that's because, you know, individual hospitals could still make decisions. Maybe if their guidelines are different, they could still make decisions based on, you know, one of these categories, which would then create a lot of discrimination, like, you know, Mm -hmm. discrimination based on your disability or discrimination based on your pre-existing condition or which then is, as I said, going to have a more severe result than just discriminating just on that one particular thing. It's also going to have a huge disproportional impact on people of color. So I think it's important to really try to get hospitals to agree to you know, not make decisions based on any of these characteristics that I read. 
And so, based on on your experience, how like responsive are the hospitals in、uh, California? How are they accepting of these? Or for the counties that I've been working with in、mm-hmm. Northern California,、mm-hmm. we haven't actually, luckily,、um, experienced a、um, shortage in beds or ventilators or resources. Like resources haven't become scarce, right? So. I don't actually know if hospitals sort of what they are going to do in that situation. I do know that a lot of these hospitals determine what they're going to do by the hospital hospital administration, but also that most of the hospitals have ethics committees,、mm-hmm. um, which a lot of times are made up of hospital administrators,、um, sometimes you know doctors, sometimes sometimes community members. We would like them to be made up of community members as well as like pastors or ministers, things like that, people like that. Because one of the things I've been thinking about is we need to like understand sort of what the standard of care is in our own states. And- yes, I do think that's very important、yeah. um, to look in everybody's own states and see if there have been guidelines.、Um, Released by your Department of Public Health or by your local hospital. You know, I'm also a part of the hashtag Nobody Is Disposable campaign. Myself and a few of other people started that campaign when COVID first started, and we've gotten, I think, over 1,700 signatures on an open letter to, you know, not discriminate based on. Disability and all these all these things. We've been able to we've been able to work with a lot of organizations and a lot of people. But one of the things that we do advocate for is that people are really really informed.、Mm-hmm. And we have on our hashtag nobody is disposable、uh, website. We even have a toolkit, a know your rights toolkit, which sort of talks about the guidelines. It talks about It's sort of just a resource、um, that people can use. It gives ideas and suggestions, like maybe call the hospital that you may be thinking of going to if you were sick or became、right. sick, and ask them what procedures they follow if there is a, a shortage of resources. And it also gives other ideas and suggestions if folks want to check that out. Because I noticed was this also part of the standard of care guidelines. Talking about you know what happens if somebody with a disability or elderly goes into the hospital. So talking about people being able to bring someone with them, or、uh, for somebody oh a support person yeah yeah so that's different um that's a separate、okay. issue that we've been working at with ILRC I but actually I've been working on that um issue with sort of the same group of、mm-hmm. uh, organizations that have been working on that issue as well actually the California Department of Public Health put out another guidance regarding support people which is um their guidance is is pretty good it's basically telling hospitals that. During COVID, they may have policies that are no vis- no visitor policies、mm-hmm. um, during COVID, but that they need to make an accommodation and an exception for folks within with disabilities who need a support person to join them.、Um, so basically, the thought is, if you are a person, if you're a disabled person. And you need your support person to be able to 
access the hospital in the same way that someone who is not disabled Mm -hmm. can access the hospital, then you should be able to have your support person with you. So yes, so for people that are nonverbal, having a support person that um, can communicate, at least in California, um, they should be allowed to do that. And, you know, different hospitals, like, for example, Kaiser has a good policy. They have a visitation policy that says the same thing, basically, that says no visitors except support people for disabled people. But the problem is that sometimes staff um, at these hospitals, I don't know if they're not properly trained or what happens, but I think they are not aware that Mm -hmm. the visitation policy has exceptions in it. So I've actually met people that have had issues getting into Kaiser as a support person because they're told, well, too bad that this person has a disability. There's no visitors allowed. And we've had to sort of educate people and train them and show them, yes, there's usually no visitors allowed, but there is an exception for disabled people. Yeah. Sort of going back to the standard of care, you talked about them as guidelines. Do you know, are they always guidelines or are they sometimes a law or? I mean, for California, they're guidelines. Right. Um, But also we are protected under laws, right? Like there's the ADA. Right. And the ADA, you can't not give a disabled person health care or health treatment. Mm Mm-hmm. There are laws, there are federal and and local laws that protect folks. Right. Um, but I think that sometimes during health crises or shortages, mm-hmm. you know, there was a lot of talk early on on giving immunity to hospitals. And, you know, I don't I don't really know what happened with that. But I think that I think the guidelines are really needed. And I think that even though they're not per se laws, Mm-hmm. At least it's something saying, like, you shouldn't make decisions based on this. At least it's something that somebody can take to a hospital and say, you're not giving me treatment because you say I have, you know, a poor quality of life. Well, look, this guideline says that you can't m- base your decision on my quality of life. So it sounds like I would think part of what we f- folks within the disability communities, what we have to do is, as you said, like, uh, we have to educate ourselves. Yeah, I think um, educate and then, you know, advocate. And mm-hmm. there's different groups. Um, there's like a, different coalitions and different um, nonprofit organizations mm-hmm. that, you know, people can contact if if there is an issue. The thing is, is like we haven't heard of a lot of issues, as I said, in Northern California because we haven't been in the situation. Right. But we do encourage folks to reach out to us if they do hear of issues or if they have issues themselves getting treatment because they're disabled or because they're fat or because they can't pay or whatever the case may be, reach out to us. We want to know about these issues and, you know, we can try to help advocate uh, for the care that everyone deserves and should be getting. In my opinion, you shouldn't give disabled people less care. I mean, you, <laughs> we should be getting, you know, you should be getting the same care or, you know, you would want you you would think you would want to take care of the communities that are not generally taken care of like the, you know, older people, disabled people, you know, 
people of color, you would think that those communities would be really getting care, not just being like, oh, we'll just care for everybody else first. <laughs> Optimistically, yes. But I would think if, if, I mean, as a member of a lot of those communities, you know, since your life, I think, is generally seen as less than, I don't know why, you know, a shortage, they'd be like, oh, yes, we should pay better, more attention to you now. But, yeah, I mean, absolutely. <clears throat> I think that's what the shortage has shown is that nobody is disposable. Right. Everybody deserves a chance at life-saving treatment. Right. As you mentioned, so one way is certainly to try to find out sort of what your state health department says about the uh, what their guidelines or their policies are. And then another way to gain more information would be to contact your hospital directly yes. and ask yes. them. And um, ask them what their crisis care guidelines. Yeah. Depending on sort of what you learn, I think there's obviously room there. There might be opportunities to do some advocacy work. And, yes. And I, and I just want to clarify, so you're not deluged with calls from all over the, <laughs> the state, that when you said we can help, you meant people in Northern California, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can call, they could call me at Independent right. Living Resource Center, San Francisco. I know DREDF is an organization that wants to know if somebody's being discriminated against um, in healthcare and and probably all areas, <laughs> Justice and Aging or Disability Rights California are okay. both other organizations that people could contact. Are those national or are those California-based? Um, Justice and Aging is national. Okay. And I believe DREDF is too. Disability Rights California is California's right. disability organization, but each state has one. In Massachusetts, it's the Disability Law Center. That's okay, in Boston that you could reach out to. I also think people can reach out to their, certainly to their ACB affiliate or chapter. And I would think also to their um, independent living centers, right? Yes. Um, a lot of independent living centers do not have uh, lawyers. I think okay. we're one of the only ones that does have a legal department. Okay. Um, but I mean, they could reach out and find out like where they could go um, right. if they're is a legal organization that could help them in their state. That makes sense. I know here in Massachusetts, for instance, similar to California, our public health department came out with their standards of care, and it would have had the same type of results as you saw in California. And mm -hmm. so they withdrew them, but at the same time, the government was able to figure out how to expand resources. So, you know, they opened up more beds, they found ventilators, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, and, but it seems to me we, we need to stay vigilant because it looks like the virus is coming back again and we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. That's true. And we just, we definitely need to remember that nobody is disposable. Everybody re deserves a chance to fight for life-saving treatment. And so if you live, if someone lives in a state that a decision is going to be based on, you know, that they're not going to get the same treatment as somebody who is not disabled, that's not okay. And right. we should advocate to change that. Right. We've used the word crisis and we talked about the pandemic, but it's important to realize that I think these standards can be used 
not just during the pandemic, right? But like if there's a hurricane. Well, these or... standards, specifically in California, basically it's the crisis care guidelines. Like it's literally labeled California SARS COVID-2 pandemic crisis care guidelines. So these are the standards that they're saying should be followed in a crisis care situation. So I think that it could relate to other crisis care situations. As far as regular situations that are not a crisis care situation, I'm not versed right. in um, sort of the standards at that time. But I mean, I will say that also during those times, I believe that healthcare decisions shouldn't be based on that, you know, list of characteristics that I read earlier, um, even in a, in a non-pandemic situation. Right. Would you tell us again the initiative if somebody wanted to know more and to access the toolkit? Yeah, if they wanted to access the guidelines, they could go to CDPH, which is California Department of Public Health.California.gov to find the guidelines. It's a 40-page document, or you can just Google California. Actually, you can probably Google California Crisis Care Guidelines, but the actual title of the document is California SARS-CoV-2 Pandemic crisis care guidelines. But whenever I've pulled up the document, I always just Google California crisis care guidelines. Okay. The other one, the other um, initiative you mentioned, the nobody's dis disposable one? Yeah. Um, it's hashtag nobody is disposable. Okay. It's actually nobody. So N-O-B-O-D-Y-I-S-D-I-S-P-O-S-A-B-L-E. So nobody is disposable.org is the website. And on that website, there's an open letter folks can sign on to. And then there's also Know Your Rights guides. Um, so it's Know Your Rights during COVID-19. It talks about basically the background of the document, what you can do before needing to go to the hospital, what you should take with you to the hospital, who to bring to the hospital, going where higher weight may be protected, strategies for advocacy, potential um, survival strategies to consider if you face discrimination, reallocation concerns, and sample letters that you can print out to give to your doctor regarding how you deserve treatment and other resources. So the Know Your Rights Guide is a pretty good guide. I mean, it's not, it's not legal advice. It's not medical advice. It is literally suggestions and tips, but obviously different things will work for dif different folks. And, you know, some of these strategies may not work as well uh, for communities of co color. I know that like, you know, black and brown individuals going to a hospital aren't going to be able to talk to the doctors, you know, the same way that a white person could talk to the doctors and get the same result. So obviously you may need to adjust it based on your, your situation um, and who you're talking to and what the feeling during the conversation is, is at that time. But it's just ideas. Thank you. I mean, it sounds really, really useful. So I'm so glad that we had a chance to, to meet and to talk because I think this is like a significant issue that I think is running under the radar. Yes. Um, and but it's it's so important for us to pay attention to these guidelines and to understand how they impact our 
ability to survive a pandemic <laughs> if yes. you get sick. So absolutely. So, Brandy, thank you so much. I'm so glad you agreed to sit down and chat with me for a little bit. Yes, you're very welcome, and thank you for having me. Cheryl, thank you so much for that interview. Thank you for bringing that to Pride Connection. Um, I'm struck by a couple of things that I think that we need to highlight at the moment. You know, this is not going to happen in a community where there's affluence, where there is multiple hospitals within a, you know, small geographic area. Where this is most going to impact is urban communities that are highly populated by black and brown people. This is going to impact in communities where standards of care are already compromised, where the healthcare systems are already stressed out. And, you know, it is, it's got to be fair to say the medical professionals themselves, when faced with, we've got two beds left, we've got a mother, 32 years old, three children, fit, working. We've got another woman who's in her 60s, obese, diabetic, and we've got a guy who's 88, lived his life, grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera. We've got the two beds. Who's the odd man out or the odd woman out? It's not, it's not the medical professionals that at this point are rely are, you know are responsible for these guidelines and it's not what choice what choice do they have when there's no national plan in action to make sure that the communities that are already stressed are not relieved in ways when a pandemic hits when a hurricane or a natural disaster hits so thank you so much for for enlightening us with this interview and and I think it's it's absolutely imperative that each and every one of us knows what our rights are, where we need to go, if, God forbid, we're in that situation. And if we're in a high urban area with only, you know, with only a few hospitals, with a few beds, we better know our other action plans. We better know our alternatives. Well, I, I hear you, and but I, I want to um, expand your concept a little bit because um, I know when, you know, COVID initially was run, sort of running rampant through the population in the, you know, springtime, spring and summer, it was really focused on large urban cities like New York and it's mm -hmm. Boston. And, um, but it sort of shifted. I mean, not that it's not happening in those cities anymore, but I think now uh, folks in the Midwest, folks in a lot of rural um, societies or communities are having to deal with COVID. And there was, you know, sort of a, oh, it's not me, so I don't need to pay attention. And I just want, I mean, I don't want to scare people. That's not why we did this. Um, but I, I want people to realize that this this particular issue issue really concerns everybody, whether you're in an urban area or a rural area, because you know we all um, at some point may have to go to the hospital, um, and you know thankfully uh, so far 
even as the numbers are rising, uh, many states, cities, counties are still able to sort of respond to care and provide care. But you are beginning to hear people in like Wisconsin and some other Midwestern states talking about being overwhelmed and, you know, being concerned that there might be scarcity coming up. Um, yeah, I heard a report, I believe it was um, the Rachel Maddow show, where there are literally eight beds left in the entire state. Yeah. So, you know, what happens when there's 15, 17, 19 people that need ventilation, that need the bed, that need, you know, there are agreements in place with other state, with, you know, the border states and other cities and other localities that are close to some of these areas. But ultimately, there's never been a national policy put forth. There's never been, and these are guidelines. Right. At the end of the day, when a hospital has 45 patients and 31 beds, choices have to be made. And it's, it's a sad state of affairs that at this point, you know, there has not been a national action plan put into place. Greetings, everybody. I, it's Leah Gardner. I just wanted to say that luckily I was able to uh, join all of you. Um, you know, I, I just heard actually today that Utah, um, there are parts of Utah that are at a maximum capacity hmm. level right now <clears throat> in terms of their hospitals, and they've already warned uh, that people may need to be turned away. I know parts of Texas have been grappling with this. Uh, definitely the Dakotas. Um, I, I fear that we are reaching a point in some areas of the country right now where we're going to see a larger surge than we have in the two previous um, COVID spikes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think this is why these t standards of care and thinking about them are so crucial. Um, just like you said, Cheryl, not to scare people, but it's something we really need to think about if we do end up needing to, to, to go to the hospital. Um, how are we going to deal with that and where, which hospital are we going to try to go to? You know, there were podcasts that were that were happening, some of the major New York Times, Washington Post, et cetera, et cetera, when the first peak happened, you know, and, and a lot of them centered around New York because, you know, unfortunately, that was where the first epicenter <laughs> happened. There were morgue trucks parked behind hospitals. There were doctors mm -hmm. that were basically pleading to, to the powers that be to help them out. Facilities were rapidly built because at that point, they had to make those choices. They had to decide who got the high level of care and who got the basic care and were left to grapple with what was gonna happen to them. And in some of these rural areas in our country, they're not, they're not equipped for this. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they've got four or five beds per hospital that's you know deemed intensive mm -hmm. care that has ventilation. They're not equipped for this. And you know, the blame can be placed in a thousand different directions. Who's wearing masks? Who's required to this? Who's required to that? At the end of the day, the person that has to go to the hospital and the family member that has to stand 
and watch them go knowing that they're not going to see them again until either they recover or they're planning a funeral. It's, it's not okay. And we need to know what our locality is, where, whatever your locality is, Utah, Wisconsin, New York City, Miami, Florida, the Bay Area of San Francisco, you need to know because no one's immune to this. And at some point it could be us. Yeah. And, and I'd also like to encourage people to check out Brandy's website. Uh, Nobody is disposable.org because it really has some basic information on what your, what our rights are as patients and as patients with disabilities. And it, it also reminded me of like basic forms we really should sign. I know, I don't know about you guys, but I know I've put them all off. Like, you know, mm-hmm. definitely have a health proxy, you know, mm-hmm. have some, like have a designated power of attorney. So things like that, that, you know, I mean, you know, I've had a decision around like, uh, Resit, you know, do not resuscitate. Uh, what's the word? Resuscitate, um, resuscitate, or yeah. or or not. You know, um, but it, you know, uh, based on my reading at her the website she's created, I mean, they talk about like making sure you have all these documents set up because, um, you know, you want to know that there will be if if you're not able to speak for yourself that the person who will speak for you is the person you want um, and, mm-hmm. and not somebody that, you know, uh, somebody else makes a decision should, should speak for you. Um, Leah and I had an interesting offshoot conversation earlier based upon listening to, you know, your, the, the interview you brought to us. And it, it's trickled down, especially for our community because what happens when it's you and you found your niche, you found your way mm-hmm. to live, to work, to buy your groceries, do your laundry. And now we are in a pandemic. And what happens when you're sick? Lyft doesn't want to take you. Uber doesn't want to take you. You're not sick enough to actually warrant the ambulance. Public transportation is too far to reach when you're that sick. You don't want to walk down the stairs. Forget about three or four blocks to find the bus or the train. You know, there's been there's been so many areas of this pandemic that are overlooked for people that are not in areas that are that are well serviced. And, and I would even point in areas out, that are well serviced, actually. Badly. And, and I would point out the testing situation too. I mean there are still a lot of places where the only testing that's available is drive-through testing. So if you do not have access because um, you are visually impaired or have another disability or for whatever reason, if you don't have access to a car, you are not, you're not getting to that drive-through testing um, location because trust me, Lyft or Uber, you go to, they're not going to take you to something mm-hmm. like that. And I mean, neither, you know, look, the, the drivers need, very obviously the drivers need to protect themselves. Um, I think it's more just an issue of, I have yet to see a viable option. Um, I guess other than calling the ambulance, um, 
you know, if you feel that you do need to go and get medical attention in a hospital um, at, at this point. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know that I have a solution either. I mean, I, I think you're correct. There are still gaps in services or getting access to, to testing. Um, and, and you're so right, um, Anthony, you know, as, as, as you said, we've built our lives and we sort of figured out the adapt, uh, um, the adaptations we need. Um, and then something like this can, and, and has thrown lots of things off. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I know this sounds really sort of petty, but I was talking with my mom. And where I live, there's not like a dry cleaners around. And so I had set it up to mm -hmm. be able to, you know, have a service um, that would come and I could give them my stuff. But then, you know, it's the pandemic. And I don't know if you still need to do that or do you want to do that? Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, there, you know, and then groceries at one point, I mean, I mean, no, there we, were heartbreaking stories when the oh, early on. first hit, and yeah. we yep. stopped hearing them, but I don't think that they stopped happening, where, you know, people that relied on home health care and, and were independent living because they had somebody that came in a couple of times a week and made sure that everything that needed to be taken care of was either taken care of by the two of them together or the home health care, and that service stopped. Yeah. And and they were left they were left hanging. There wasn't family. Family was three hundred miles away, three thousand miles away. There was mm -hmm. no family. There's so many heartbreaking stories. You know, I the viewers know I list I lost my eyesight a little a little over four and a half years ago. And one of the things I participated early on in New York City was the mayor's office of disability services, you know, that had emergency situation um I want to call them lectures I'm, I'm whatever they were billed as, but basically what do you do if mm -hmm. this hits, if the hurricane hits, if the city is under attack, et cetera, et cetera, there was no talk of what to happen and what, what's to happen in a pandemic. And all of those situations basically were, these are your emergency contacts, et cetera, et cetera. And within a couple of days, you know, the response will happen and you'll be <laughs> maybe not back to normal, but you'll be back to where, you're okay. Right. Well, not a pandemic, not when I'm blind, <laughs> not when, you know, you can't get Instacart for two and a half weeks. Right. Um, and I've got three boxes of pasta, you know, a ragu and a ramen noodles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, luckily we've seen, I think Instacart respond, um, pretty well to, to all of this. Um, I don't know, though, in some parts of the country, I know in, in bigger cities, things have returned um, pretty much to the status quo with Instacart. What I haven't heard is from rural areas, whether there's still um, problems with fulfilling orders in a timely manner. Uh, but I mean, there, there are still other things, you know, that we just need to consider I still need to really deal with what if I get sick and do need to go to the hospital who is going to take care of my dog mm. <clears throat> yep. you know in in because I can't take him obviously so who is going to take care of him in 
that kind of emergency, um, those are the kind of things we really need to set some, um, we need to, we need to figure out what we're going to do because if, if that moment happens, that is not what you want to be trying to think about amid the stress of being sick. Right. So, um, I think it merits all of us just sitting down and really trying to form some kind of game plan. I'm sorry, Cheryl. I think I interrupted you. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and I mean, and I I truly don't want anybody who's listening to this to really think, I'm going to say it again, we're not trying to scare anybody. Um, But I, I, I would like to encourage all of us to be a little, I mean, and maybe there are folks who've already done all this planning and everything's set up. Um, but I, I know I haven't. And I know that I really, you know, I need to sit down and, and really do something rather than, you know, just sort of thinking about it. Um, that I need to complete the correct forms, make sure I have mm-hmm. them and, and have thought through, um, you know, what happens if, if we don't have access to Instacart. Um, and we don't, you know, we don't have access to Peapod or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to some, and also recognize <clears throat> that, you know, those are, I think, solutions, um, they are in their own way, sort of expensive solutions. Oh, yes. And there are people in our mm-hmm. community That's who, right. who can't afford those and who, you know, maybe sort of pushing their health choices a little bit because they 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 nonetheless have to take uh paratransit or or public transportation or something to get to the store to get their groceries um yeah i i agree with you unfortunately i think people sometimes with disabilities are pushing their health to some degree i heard somebody say the other day you know i don't i just don't i don't take lyft I don't take Lyft. And I thought, well, you know, on a personal level, if I'm going to take my guide dog to the vet, I have no choice other than to take Lyft. If I I had to go to the dentist for some uh, treatments a few weeks ago, I have to take Lyft. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's no, there's no option. So I I do think that some of us have to make those kind of um, decisions. Am I going to go to the dentist and, get my teeth taken care of in a timely manner and risk, you know, maybe the driver being ill and lift, or am I not going to do that? Right. Yeah. I think a lot of of those choices, especially Mm -hmm. in the early months were, you know, I mean, obviously in the very beginning, elective surgeries, any kind of dental, any kind of vision care was completely suspended. But even as things have gotten back to normal, especially, in our community because even to go to the grocery store, we need someone to help us. Unless we're a high partial, we need someone to help us. We need someone, you know, and there are grocery chains where they're not even taking cash anymore. Um, It's, there's so many, there's so many things to think about, but time as Leah is often fond of saying, borrowed from her good friend, Daryl, um, Dwayne, time is a cruel mistress. As Gabriel said earlier in the program, Cheryl, um, 
took our, up our offer to our BPI members to take a topic that they felt passionate about, do the research, bring it to the show. If you have something that you are passionate about, something that you have been researching, something that you think is a topic for Pride Connection, please reach out to Blind Membership at blindlgbtpride.org. Leah? Why don't you tell them the rest of the info that we give out at the end of the show, and we'll be back in two weeks. In a week, sure. No, two weeks. That's right. No, we uh, we want you all to we want you all to vote next week, and uh, be you know paying attention to the uh, election results. Please, if you haven't cast your vote yet, please fill out your ballots or find out where your early voting locations are, Uh, and you can always reach us with any. if you need further information at our website at blindlgbtpride.org. Cheryl Cummings, thank you so much. Tim, who is our usual editor, thank you so much. Byron Lee, who is manning the helm tonight, thank you so much. Gabriel Leah, myself, will be back in two weeks. If you don't want to listen to all of the election coverage next week, we are replaying our interview with transgender Congressperson of Wheeling, Virginia, Rosemary Ketchum. We'll be back in two weeks. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Live in pride. Good night, everyone. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org.